Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, August 10th. In today's news, anarchists set fire to the police union headquarters in Portland. Under pressure from the Trump administration, Afghanistan will release 400 Taliban fighters. And Hong Kong arrests a leader of the free press as China sends fighter jets over the Taiwan Strait. But first, the big idea. Already largely absent from intense negotiations for the coronavirus relief package, President Trump fully distanced himself from the thorny legislative process by leaving Washington on Thursday for a weekend at his private golf resort in New Jersey. After talks on Capitol Hill collapsed, Trump assembled some of his dues-paying club members to watch him complete the final step of what has become a familiar routine throughout his turbulent presidency, signing a legally dubious executive order after failing to reach a deal with Congress. The president, who pitched himself to voters as the consummate negotiator and the ultimate dealmaker, has repeatedly found his strategies flummoxed by the complexities and pressures of Washington lawmaking, even though for two of the three and a half years he's been president, Republicans had unified control of Congress. In response, Trump has frequently relied on showmanship and pageantry to try to turn negotiating failures into victories. He was greeted with raucous applause by dozens of supporters on Saturday as he posed for pictures in a simulation of a White House signing ceremony, which is what you do typically when real legislation is passed. But the four documents that the president signed and held up proudly were neither bills nor acts, despite his repeatedly referring to them as just that, and their effectiveness and legality are already being called into question by Democrats and some Republicans in the Congress that he is attempting to bypass. Trump said the executive actions he signed would provide economic relief to millions of Americans by deferring payroll taxes and providing temporary unemployment benefits by repurposing unspent dollars. But whether that relief will ever reach Americans remains in doubt, as Trump's unilateral actions face legal and logistical uncertainties. Several historians and lawmakers from both parties told Tolu Olorunipa and Ashley Parker that the president's inability to reach a deal with Congress on a payroll tax cut or an extension of unemployment benefits underscored his largely underwhelming record as a negotiator. Republicans and Democrats rejected Trump's payroll cut tax proposal, fearing that it would shortchange Social Security and Medicare. And the president was unable to bring the two sides together on a compromise over extending enhanced unemployment benefits after the $600 weekly benefit expired last month. Instead, Trump's executive memorandum says he would provide $400 in extra benefits for Americans. But that measure itself is constitutionally suspect since Congress has the authority under the Constitution to appropriate funds. But it's also of questionable workability. He's using the disaster relief program, what you would use typically for hurricanes or earthquakes or storms. Under the measure, states would have to pitch in $100 a week per person and set up a new mechanism for delivering the funds separate from their unemployment systems. Several governors, including Ohio's Republican Mike DeWine, have said they're not sure because of coronavirus budget shortfalls that they'll be able to participate in the program the president announced. Trump's executive order on evictions also stops far short of what he claimed it does. The order does not reinstate the federal eviction moratorium that expired last month. Instead, it orders federal agencies, and this is a quote, to consider whether a temporary halt on evictions might be necessary and to identify potential funds to help struggling renters. It does nothing except direct people to look into things. 
Democrats slammed the executive measures as both too limited and accused Trump of failing to grasp the weight of the pandemic that has now killed more than 159,000 Americans. While Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska referred to the president's actions as, quote, unconstitutional slop, Trump received support from most Republicans on the Hill who praised him for taking action amid the congressional logjam. To a person, every single one of them who praised the president's actions over the weekend also attacked Barack Obama for using executive action to bypass Congress. In the past, Americans have rewarded presidents who rise to confront national tragedies with steady leadership, creative ideas, and political skills that bring opposing sides to agreement. Trump has been absent from that process, and his poll numbers have fallen as the virus's death toll has soared. Confirmed U.S. cases officially surpassed 5 million on Sunday. It took only 17 days for our number to rise from 4 million to 5 million. The previous million cases were also reported in about a two-week span. The United States leads the world with a quarter of all global infections. Brazil has the second most number of cases at 3 million. India's third with 2.1 million. Trump hasn't spoken at length to Nancy Pelosi since October, and the relationship between the two most powerful figures in government has deteriorated in the wake of the House's vote to impeach the president last December. Trump's signing ceremony on Saturday followed a pattern that's become so well established during the last three and a half years. He often claims that his unilateral approach when he fails to reach a compromise is better than the legislation he had originally unsuccessfully sought. Unable to get a deal with Congress last year for funding his border wall, Trump ended a 35-day partial government shutdown by announcing that he would use executive action to repurpose money for his wall. After failing in 2017 to pass a repeal of Obamacare, Trump instead promised to use the power of the pen to provide an alternative health care plan. He has yet to do so. On Friday, he claimed he would again address health care by sending an executive order requiring health insurers to cover pre-existing conditions something that is already required under the law known as Obamacare. Trump has repeatedly promised legislation to address gun violence after every mass shooting of his presidency, but ultimately all he's done is issue an executive ban on bump stocks after refusing to negotiate in good faith with Congress. After Congress and the White House failed to come up with a legislative package to address police misconduct in the wake of the national protests over racial injustice this summer, Trump used a Rose Garden ceremony to sign an executive order that did nothing of consequence, but created a good photo op. Now the White House is preparing for the courts to have the final say on his latest end run around the legislative branch. In the end, whether Trump serves one term or two, his legacy will include the further erosion of the system of checks and balances envisioned by the founding fathers under the Constitution. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, At the police union building in Portland, Oregon on Saturday night, a small group of people hacked away at the plywood blocking the doors. They pried it loose and set a fire in the entrance, igniting chunks of the wood and tossing them aside. Moments later, Portland police declared a riot, put out the flames, and began what was an hours-long game of cat and mouse, chasing the protesters down business-lined streets and through a park in North Portland. The Portland Police Bureau said it made several arrests, early Sunday morning, but it didn't release information on who or how many were taken into custody. After a brief lull following Trump's partial retreat from the city last month, the late night protests have been ratcheting up this week with a renewed focus on the police locally. Portland police confirmed that they're also investigating an alleged incident early Saturday morning that put many protesters on edge. 
Police responded to a 911 caller on 2.30 a.m. reporting multiple explosions in a northeast Portland park where witness accounts posted to social media alleged that two men threw small homemade bombs at protesters gathered in the park. As anger has been bubbling back up among demonstrators, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, a Democrat who also serves as the city's police commissioner, held a news conference in which he likened some of the protesters' actions to attempted murder. He pointed to an incident from this past Wednesday night in which protesters barricaded exits to the Portland Police Department's East Precinct building using cars and wooden planks, and then they disabled security cameras, and then they started a fire that he said was intended to cause serious injury or death. Meanwhile, in Chicago on Sunday, hundreds of people smashed windows and looted stores along the Magnificent Mile the Windy City's downtown shopping district. Police chased suspects toting bags full of goods, tackling some to the ground and blocking off streets. This followed a day after police shot and wounded a man in the city's south side. And in D.C., at least 20 people were shot in the southeast section of the city, including one fatally during a party attended by hundreds. D.C. police say at least three shooters opened fire from different locations at around 12.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. An off-duty police officer who was apparently at the party was critically injured. And on Fox News, Attorney General Bill Barr is slamming the Black Lives Matter movement, saying that protest tactics are, quote, fascistic. He's accusing the left of tearing down the system, and he describes the BLM movement as a, quote, revolutionary group of essentially Bolsheviks. Number two. After months of delays, the Afghan government will release the last group of high-value Taliban prisoners, removing a final hurdle to the start of direct talks with the militants. President Ashraf Ghani's announcement on Sunday comes in response to days of intense U.S. pressure on the Afghan government to abide by preconditions to the talks outlined in the U.S.-Taliban peace deal. That agreement called for those talks to begin back in March, five months ago. But preliminary negotiations repeatedly hit snags. The Afghan government was not party to the peace deal between the United States government and the Taliban and objected to several of its terms. Without the start of direct negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government, the peace deal the U.S. signed with the Taliban could collapse. Violence has escalated since the signing of the deal, and U.S. forces have repeatedly been pulled back into the conflict to defend government forces with air support. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued a remarkably blunt statement this past Thursday, calling for the release of all the Taliban prisoners and warning that U.S. assistance could be cut off to the Afghan government unless peace talks progress. The U.S.-Taliban deal called for the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners, 5,000, in exchange for the Taliban releasing 1,000 members of Afghanistan's security forces. The Taliban released the 1,000 prisoners, but the Afghan government initially refused to release the 400 highest-value Taliban prisoners who were linked to attacks that killed scores of innocent civilians. Abdullah Abdullah, a former presidential candidate who is now heading the government's reconciliation efforts, said once the prisoners are released, talks with the Taliban will likely begin within the next few days. Despite the repeated delays to the Afghan-Taliban talks, Trump and the Pentagon have announced plans to keep drawing down U.S. forces in the country ahead of our elections in November. Defense Secretary Mark Esper told Fox News on Saturday that U.S. troop levels in Afghanistan will drop below 5,000 by November in time for the election. Number three, 
Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar praised Taiwan's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and reiterated U.S. support for the island in, quote, security, commerce, healthcare, and shared common values as he became today the highest ranking U.S. official to meet the president of Taiwan in four decades. Azar's three-day visit was prompted, he said, by Taiwan's world-class response to COVID-19. The island of 23 million has reported only 480 cases, and U.S. and Taiwanese officials signed an accord today pledging further cooperation on disease control and drug development. But the trip, in optics and rhetoric, was framed squarely against the backdrop of the escalating conflict between the Trump administration and the Chinese government, which dispatched fighter jets into the Taiwan Strait today to show its displeasure with the American delegation. China of course, claims Taiwan a self-ruled island backed militarily by Washington as its territory and objects strenuously to their participation in international bodies like the World Health Organization and to any official exchanges that lend Taiwan the appearance of sovereign nation status. Under a framework that recognizes Beijing as the sole government of China and acknowledges without accepting China's territorial claim over Taiwan, senior U.S. officials rarely meet with the Taiwanese. But norms of behavior have been shifting under the administrations of Trump and the Taiwanese president, who's frequently criticized by her domestic opponents for siding too closely with Washington and jeopardizing Taiwan's economy and security. Meanwhile, in the region, in Hong Kong, police today arrested media tycoon and freedom activist Jimmy Lai, his sons, and several executives of his publishing group for allegedly colluding with foreign forces, a crime punishable by life imprisonment under the sweeping new national security law that China recently imposed on Hong Kong. Officers arrived at the home of Lai and his sons. They own Next Digital, which is the parent company of Apple Daily, which is the essentially leading pro-democracy news outlet critical of Beijing. Lai founded it back in 1995. Shortly after they raided the homes, more than 200 cops showed up at Next Digital's offices. According to a live stream of the raid, they searched the newsroom, they rifled through reporters' desks and papers, they told employees to show identification cards, and they warned journalists to stop filming and photographing the raid. But the journalists bravely did their job, and they continued to live stream what was happening. The dramatic events marked the harshest use yet uh, by the authorities of the new security law and highlighted the growing threat to pro-democracy activists and journalists in Hong Kong, where press freedom is supposed to enjoy constitutional protection. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, August 10th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.